Thank you, Brother Bob. <clears throat> Appreciate him helping me conserve my voice a little bit this morning. Take your Bibles. Turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. We'll continue in our long-running series on the greatest sermon ever preached. This is the 33, number 33 sermon that I've preached on that sermon. That shows how great that sermon is. The Sermon on the Mount. While you're turning there, let me just ask you, have you ever heard a sermon that just seemed to cover everything? I mean, it went from Genesis to Revelation. Um, both saints and sinners were addressed and convicted. It just seemed to tie all the loose ends together, law and grace, Old and New Testament, Moses and Jesus, doctrine and precept. I've heard many of those kind of sermons, but this sermon is that kind of sermon. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the most complete sermon ever preached. It's inspired. It's comprehensive. It's perennially relevant. It's universally applicable. It challenges our preconceptions. It corrects our mistaken notions. It addresses all our relationships to God, to the law, to other believers, and to the section we've come to now, to unbelievers. There's never been a sermon like it, and there never will be. You can't afford to ignore it. I say without apology and not trying to be sensational, you and I will face these words at the judgment bar of God someday. So I hope I've got your attention, and I hope you're going to listen on purpose as we read Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus is talking, ask and it shall be given you, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? Wonderful teaching on prayer. Just relate, since it's been a couple of weeks since I've been in the pulpit, the last time I preached from the Sermon on the Mount, we were talking about the first six verses of chapter 7, and the essence of Jesus' teaching there is don't judge. Judge not that ye be not judged. That's what we expounded. What he meant was don't condemn in the sense of pronouncing final judgment. Jesus condemned condemning in that sense. But the Bible doesn't just contain negative commands and prohibitions, because immediately following this one, don't judge, Jesus juxtaposes a positive command, and he says, but do pray. Don't judge, but do pray. You say, Pastor, is there a connection? I believe there is. Jesus is not just raising random topics and revisiting some every once in a while, because he's already talked about prayer. 
Oh no, he's a master teacher. And the Bible is a wonderful, masterful, purposeful unity. It's a mosaic that fits a divine pattern. There is a relationship, there is a connection between these verses on prayer and the verses that preceded them. What does prayer have to do with casting out a two-before out of somebody's eye before we can extract the speck from our brother's eye? What does prayer have to do with refraining from judging someone else even when he is in sin? Well, we're confronted with these startling words in verse 2. Let me go back to what we read two weeks ago. Verse 2, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet or measure, it shall be measured to you again. We really understand that verse. We'll realize that how can I possibly live up to such a standard? How can I, as Jesus said in John chapter 7, judge not according to the appearance, but judge only righteous judgment? How can I refrain from condemning and yet have exercised spiritual discernment and discrimination as we notice from verse 6? That's a sky-high demand. How can I attain to it? Jesus' answer is pray. You ever seen it in that light? Pray. You see, we need help and grace outside of ourselves. And how do we get it? Ask, and ye shall receive. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. So prayer is the answer. Prayer is the connection. And so for the remaining time of the sermon, I I hope you'll listen carefully as I explain what we must understand from these verses to attain to the certainty that God answers prayer. If I asked everyone of you individually this morning, do you believe God answers prayer? I'd get a 100% answer yes. But do we live like it? No. Do we pray like it? No. So we need this message. I need it. Every one of us need it. There are three powerful realities here that will cause us to really understand and be convinced that God answers prayer. And they involve all three members of the Trinity. It's very interesting. I didn't even notice that right away as I saw these things and put them together. Three powerful realities. I hope you'll remember them. Number one, the authority of the promiser. The authority of the promiser. Verses 7 and 8 reiterate a tremendous promise. Jesus is not just repeating himself, but he just wants to emphasize things. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. There's a progression there. I'll talk about that. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. And then he says it a little bit differently. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and everyone that seeketh findeth. Everyone that knocketh, it shall be opened. He is not only willing to answer prayer, every prayer, but he is able to answer it. There have been times when when my five kids were younger, I have to confess, when I got their wish list for Christmas presents, I had to say sometimes, remember before I would go shopping in Tampa, Florida, because you couldn't get things back then that we needed on Grand Cayman Island. 
But I have to say, whoa, I'm not a money tree. Or I don't have a money tree growing in the backyard. I want to please my kids. But I couldn't get their hopes up that I could fulfill everything on their wish list. But I'm here to tell you this morning, Jesus doesn't have that problem. His ability is not limited. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. He is the God who testified and he presented his credentials in the Old Testament in Psalm 81 verse 10. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. He is infinitely able. Do we really believe that? And do we believe that he is willing? John Newton, who gave us the great hymn Amazing Grace, wrote a number of other great hymns, including this one that says, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. I love that. How true that is. It's quite clear that Jesus is speaking on his own authority here. Over and over in this sermon, we've come across that repeated formula. Ye have heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you. Let us not forget that the resurrected Christ is the one who said, I have all authority given unto me in heaven and in earth. So when he said these words, he can back them up. We need to meditate long and frequently on the attributes of God. And then our confidence in a God who answers prayer will grow. You know what the problem is with most of us? Our God is too small. We think of Him in human terms. We limit the Holy One of Israel. So let's talk about God for a few moments. Then maybe our faith will grow. The authority of Jesus Christ in, in particular, it is absolute. His authority is absolute. We use that word or some form of it. Usually we use the, the word absolutely instead of just saying yes, you know, for a little bit of emphasis. We, we respond by saying absolutely. What does absolute mean? Well, if you look it up in the dictionary, it means this, not qualified or diminished in any way, not relative or comparative. Not qualified, not diminished, not relative or comparative. What, what God is, He is absolutely not diminished, not relative, not commutative, He's, or, or, or comparative. God is absolutely immutable. God is absolutely unchanging. Malachi 3, 6, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. I hope you're as disillusioned as I am with the politicians. They change all the time. They're all over the map. They say they're not going to build a wall, but then they do build a wall. God is absolutely immutable. God is absolutely holy. That's the meaning of those words in Isaiah 6, verse 3, where the young prophet had a vision of, of, the, uh, of Jesus. It was high and lifted up. And the angel said, holy, holy, holy. That's not for the Trinity. That's to say superlatively, God is holy, absolutely holy. He is absolutely omnipotent or all-powerful. Psalm 62, verse 11, God has spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth 
unto God. There is nothing too hard for our Lord. And therefore, we should expect that our God absolutely answers prayer. Amen? Jesus is not engaged in double talk or vagaries. He doesn't mince words here. There are no caveats. There are no deep mysteries. God does not stutter when He speaks. And Jesus is God. And He speaks in simple, absolute terms. And He repeats Himself here so as not to be understood. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone without exception that asketh receiveth. Everyone without exception that seeketh findeth. Everyone without exception that knocketh it shall be opened unto him. And I think you're aware that the verb tenses here are speak of continuous action. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. And yes, there is a progression here. Oh, we could meditate on these verses for a number of Sundays. Seeking is more than asking. It implies follow-through, doesn't it? Knocking speaks of perseverance. How many of you, when you go up the door, just knock once? Somebody would think a bird hit the door. No, you knock several times. Knocking, follow through, perseverance. Secondly, Jesus' authority is universal. All the promises of God in Christ are yea, and in Him, amen, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. We may confidently appropriate them all. You say, oh, but what if we claim a verse for the church that's meant for Israel? Yeah, I know we could do that, but yet. Do you think maybe the Holy Spirit would tell us that? I think so. We know the Word. We have Jesus if we are saved. Amen? He, Christ dwells within us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And in Him we have all things. I can't emphasize that enough. Would you take your Bibles, turn to verse you, I hope you've memorized. If not, would you please mark it and remind yourself to memorize it? Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Romans 8, verse 32, in Christ we have everything. Notice this tremendous promise. Verse 32 of Romans 8, this mountain peak chapter on the Holy Spirit, He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, as He did that on Calvary, right? Now notice the next few words, how shall He not with Him also freely give us most things? A lot of things. What does it say? All things. Did God mean that? Did you know all spiritual blessings are ours in Christ? If God gave us His dearest and His best, and that's what He did when He gave His Son to die on the cross of Calvary for us. If He did that, do you think He would begrudge to give us anything that we need, anything that will glorify Him? Oh, don't slander and characterize God like that. Don't misrepresent Him. The authority of Jesus Christ is a wise authority. It is an understanding authority. God is absolutely wise. He's omniscient. 
Three times in the New Testament we encounter that expression, the only wise God. Romans, 1 Timothy, and the little epistle of Jude. When we think of wise people, probably the name Solomon comes to our mind. Yes, Solomon was wise, but he wasn't absolutely so. His faults are recorded. It's hard to believe that a wise man like Solomon did what he ended up doing. Daniel was wise, and therefore he was promoted in the courts of three successive world empires. And although no fault is recorded of Daniel in the Bible, he was not absolutely wise. And we know that because he deferred to Yahweh. He prayed to Jehovah. The wisdom that Daniel exercised was derived. It was not inherent. And so when we come to God, we're coming to one who knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows what's best for us. The Bible says he's numbered our days. The very hairs of our head are numbered. He tells us in Jeremiah 29, verse 11, which may be the favorite verse, life verse of many of you, it's worthy of that, that he has thoughts towards us. Aren't you glad God thinks about you? Thoughts of shalom of peace and not of evil, to give us a future and a hope. God has purposed to put His wisdom on our side. And so we read in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 that Christ has been made unto us by God. Wisdom, first thing, wisdom, then righteousness, and then sanctification, and finally redemption. In Colossians 2, verse 3, forgive the misprint on the screen, I may say verse 30. There's no 30th verse in the second chapter of Colossians. Colossians 2, verse 3, we, in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we have Christ if we're saved. Yes, God knows what we really need. And He's not stingy. He's not grudging. He's not reluctant to give. Oh, to be sure, thank God He doesn't give me everything I ask for that I may chance to ask Him. I don't know about you, but I've lived long enough that I look back on my life and thank God for protecting me from myself many times. Just like you, I've asked God for things and to do things which I very much wanted at the time and which I believed were the best for me, but now with the benefit of hindsight and growth in grace, I can honestly say thank you, Lord, for shutting that door and not giving me what I asked you for. Never forget when I was in college and God really dealt with my heart about missions, I uh, surrendered to go to France as a missionary. I just read about France and saw all the presentations about France and saw how few missionaries were going to France, what a hard field it was. And so I said, Lord, I, would you help me go to France? And then I took French for my degree, and it ruined my GPA. And God shut that door. And I look back and I say, thank you, God, for ans- not answering that prayer. I'll just stick with English. Praise the Lord for the missionaries to France. Yes, God knows us better than we know ourselves. God knows what's best for us. But I love uh, Psalm 103, verses 
13 and 14, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. He knows what we really are. One of the telltale signs that we are helpless sinners is that we don't realize what our true needs are. Our perceived needs are not usually our actual needs. Did you know that? We think we need better opportunities. We think we need a better education or more adequate resources. We think we need a more supportive family or spouse. And if we had those things, we would thrive. We wouldn't have problems. But the truth is, if we realized our actual need, not our perceived need, we would fly to Christ to save us from our blinding and binding sins. You know what your greatest need is? I don't know what you think it is, but your greatest need is for forgiveness, for salvation. But this tendency not to know our real needs, it just persists even after we're saved. It persists in our lives as believers. This explains why we're so living so miserably below our privileges, why we're so prone to doubt God, and our hearts are still full of unbelief. Uh, you've heard me say it before. I'll say it again. Unbelief is the, the reigning damning sin. Only the Holy Spirit can convince a man of it. That's why Jesus said what He said in John 8, when He, the Spirit, is coming, He will convince the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. Of sin, why? Because they believe not on Me. That's the essence of sin, unbelief. Only the Holy Spirit can convict of that. Oh, this reigning, damning sin of unbelief. It still runs in our blood, even as Christians. It's so natural for us to distrust God. It's so easy for us. Are you listening? I'm not here to throw accolades this morning. I love you, and that's why I'm going to tell you the truth. It's so easy for us as Christians to just rest in prayer as a religious exercise and be content even if God doesn't answer. You can't say amen, just say, oh, me. Let me quote Andrew Murray here, and if you want to get a great book on prayer, the greatest book on prayer outside the Bible itself is Andrew Murray's classic, With Christ in the School of Prayer. This is what he said many years ago. It is far easier to the flesh to submit without an answer than to yield itself to be searched and purified by the Holy Spirit until it has learned to pray the prayer of faith. Beloved, if there is one thing that Jesus would teach us in these verses, I don't see how you can miss it. It is this. Prayer is meant to have an answer. Would you say that with me? Together, here we go. Prayer is meant to have an answer. One more time. Prayer is meant to have an answer. We have that promise on the authority of the one who would testify of his own father. I know that thou hearest me always. Oh, beware of and do not succumb to the, to the, the, the temptation to weaken the force of Jesus' words here. 
He's not being dark and hidden and inscrutable and mysterious. We may confidently expect an answer to our prayers. Everyone that asketh receiveth. How can we be certain of that? Because of the authority of the promiser. How can we be certain that God answers prayer and approach Him in faith? Secondly, because of the heart of the Father. Not only the authority of Jesus, but the heart of God. We're thrown back on what Jesus first said when He gave us the model prayer in chapter 6 of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. He, He unfolded it with these words, After this manner, therefore pray ye, what are the next two words, class? Our Father, our Father, which art in heaven. Oh, how we need to be conscious of the Father's presence. We don't learn to pray in a classroom or a laboratory with an instructor. We learn to pray in the living room, in the parlor with our own dear Father. What a privilege to call Him that. You've heard me say so many times, but it needs to be repeated. No Old Testament Jew, as it's recorded in the pages of the Old Testament, ever dared to call God his Father. You won't find it one time in 39 books. But we have that privilege. Jesus came to reveal the Father, and he taught us to pray our Father. Oh, let us avail ourselves of this right of access. But I don't want to presume something. I don't want to take something for granted. Is God your Father? There's this mushy, sentimental teaching out there that says that everybody's a child of God. The universal brotherhood of man, the universal fatherhood of God, that's the biggest lie ever told. Jesus told the Pharisees of his day when they insisted that God was their father and that they were not born of fornication, implying that Jesus was, he said, ye are of your father who? The devil. And the lusts, the desires of your father ye will do. Right here in verse 11 of our text, Christ says something that refutes the notion of universal fatherhood as far as the fatherhood of God. He says, if ye then being evil... Did you catch it? He didn't say, if we then being evil. He knew he was essentially different from them. He was the only begotten Son of God. He does not include himself in the ye, but he does include the whole of mankind. Yes, we are evil, the rest of us. We have to be born again to become a child of God. Did you hear that? That's what the Bible says. You're not, God is not your father until you are born of God. If you're born once, you're going to die twice. You're going to have to be born twice to only die once, not experience that second death. The Bible says in John chapter 1 verse 12, for as many as received him, that is Christ, To them, God gives the authority to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. And how do we believe? The next verse tells us, which were born, not of God, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. No denomination can say you're saved. 
No man can say you're a Christian. Only God can give birth to you into his family and give you the faith to believe. I got to quit hollering so much. But then once you're in the family, oh, the rights and privileges pertaining thereto, amen? Not the least of which is this privilege of prayer. And so I urge you again, don't let Satan slander your father to you. Because he is not only the accuser of the brethren, he accuses God to the brethren. What kind of God do we pray to? First of all, he is the one longing to give what is good. Although the best of human fathers are still sinful. That's the point Jesus is making here in verse 11. Yet they still generally desire to give what their children ask for. I say generally because that's, it's not so without exception. Paul described to Timothy parents in the last days who are without natural affection. What kind of parents are they? Well, they're the ones that drown their babies in the bathtubs. They're the ones that leave their kids locked in sealed cars on sweltering days. Thankfully, that is the exception, not the rule, but it's happening. But most people want to give their kids the best. Most parents, as sinful as they are. And Jesus goes on to say, how much more, infinitely more, does God, our perfect heavenly Father, delight to give good things to them that ask Him? You see, if we don't realize how good God is and His thoughts toward us, if we are so guilt-ridden and think unworthy thoughts of God, we won't ask. Or if we do, it'll just be a little method, a little act. We don't mean it. And the Bible says we have not because we ask not. So let's think true thoughts. Let's think worthy thoughts of our God. And then we will come to Him in humble faith and ask and follow through and seek and persevere and knock. And then we'll mark those promises in God's Word about what God will do. Could I show you just one of them? I hope you'll mark this in your Bible if you haven't already as well. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 7. Please turn to Psalm 84, Psalm 84, verse 11. Maybe you've memorized this verse. I hope so. Psalm 84, and verse 11. Here it is. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. We need both, don't we? The Lord will give grace and glory. And here it is. Mark it in your Bible. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. No good thing. Oh, do not lessen the force of those words. Take them at face value. Plead them with God in prayer. Lord, you will not let me go without any good thing that I need. Whatever your need, whatever your state, your status, take God as your dear Father. 
persevere in prayer. I'm serious. Parents with children, and I don't care what age they are, if you've got kids, you've got prayer requests. Whether they're faithful or whether they're wayward. Couples desiring children, pray. Singles longing to be married, pray. Singles longing to know God's will, pray. Lonely widows and widowers seeking to make their remaining years count for Jesus Christ, pray. Do not listen to Satan's slander or to your own heart's evil forebodings. Prove God to be a faithful father to you. No good thing will he withhold from me as I walk uprightly. He longs to do what is good. Do you really believe that God's like that? Then he disdains to give what is evil. Verses 9 and 10 are often overlooked as we go back to our text. For what man is there of you of whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? Those are rhetorical questions. The answer is obviously no. That's ridiculous. It's absurd. No man would do that. Multiply that by infinity, and if you have God's, and you will have God's attitude towards you as his child. If we're asking for bread, God's not going to give us a stone. If we're asking for a fish, he's not going to cruelly mock us and, and give us a snake. <clears throat> it's interesting, in, in Luke chapter 11 that we read at the beginning of the service, the word uh, egg is used, not fish. A little change there, egg. Eggs were a delicacy in Christ's day. Chickens were so valuable that eggs were considered a luxury. God is our loving Father, and He will not give what is evil. Notice I did not say never without exception, because there is one exception. Psalm 106.15 gives us an exception. You need not turn there. I'll give you the, the context. In that verse, God is describing the stiff-necked Israelites who rebelled against God in the wilderness when He had delivered them from Egypt. I mean, just showed His great arm of strength, His miracle-working power. They fell to murmuring and complaining right away. They provoked Him by disdaining the manna that He sent, the angel's food from heaven. They demanded meat. They provoked God. And the Bible says this, in Psalm 106, verse 15, and he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. What a warning that is. Do not insist on your fleshly lusts, because God may give you what you ask for, and you'll wish that he had not. Thirdly, how can we be certain of our God as a prayer answering God? What do we need to understand? Not only the authority of the promiser and the heart of the Father, but thirdly, we need, and you don't see this readily here, so you're going to have to really think with me, we must understand the, and be assured of, by the Holy Spirit. You say, Pastor, I don't see the Holy Spirit mentioned in these verses at all. I mean, I know you have great insights, but the, the, you're going a little bit too far this time. Well, I would admit, yeah, you're, you're correct. There's, 
No mention of the Holy Spirit in this passage. But if you will compare verse 11 with a, a verse that is a parallel verse that we read at, in our congregational responsive reading at the beginning of the service, Luke 11, verse 13, you will see that the only change in wording is that this verse says that God will give good things to them that ask. And in Luke eleven thirteen, 13, it says God will give the Holy Spirit to them that ask. I don't have to have a seminary education to, to realize that good things equals the Holy Spirit. Good things equals the Holy Spirit. In giving the Holy Spirit, the Father gives all things. The Spirit is the comprehensive gift, as in every other virtue and grace. The Holy Spirit is the key. He's the supplier. He's the divine conveyancer. And that's true in this matter of prayer. He is the one who helps us to pray. I want you to see several verses from Romans 8 over the next few moments as we come to a close. So would you turn there, please? Keep your finger there in Matthew 7, Romans chapter 8. Once you see verse 26, He's the one who helps us to pray. He's the one who gives us boldness in prayer. If you're convicted of a lack of boldness, your need is more of the Spirit. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, and we all have them. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Could I stop there and interject? If we don't know what to pray for, how are we going to be able to pray with confidence? For what does happen to come out of our mouth? He goes on to say, but the Spirit itself or Himself, we know that's a person, the Spirit, maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Beloved, will you hear me for just a few moments? And I believe if you get a hold of this, your prayer life will be revolutionized. I wonder how many of you would really say in your heart of hearts this morning, more than anything else, Pastor, I want to get prayers answered daily. I want to be confident that I've touched the heart of God before I get off my knees. I want to pray spiritual prayers that resonate with a God in heaven. I want to ask you to raise your hand. I hope every hand would be raised. Let's realize that the Holy Spirit is the one, are you listening, who causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. Before I show you that verse in the same chapter, let me ask you, are there degrees of assurance? Sometimes people just kind of pop off very flippantly, glibly and say, assurance is just taking God at His Word, period. Now, I don't want to refute that. I don't want to minimize the importance of that. But let me just say the Bible talks about degrees of assurance. The Bible talks about not only consolation, but strong consolation. The Bible speaks about much assurance. The writer to the Hebrews speaks of full assurance of faith. Could I ask you, if you saw your name written in the book of life, would you breathe a sigh of relief? If you would, then you don't have much assurance. I've got something better. It's the inward witness of the Holy Spirit that causes us to feel our sonship, that causes us to know our right of access to the Father. And that's found here in verse 15 and 16, same chapter, 
Well, it's all right here in it, Romans 8. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption. See the capital S, that's correct. Whereby we cry, and that's that intense, personal, intimate cry, Abba, Father. And then verse 16, the Spirit itself or Himself beareth witness with our spirit, with our human spirit, that we are the children of God. Beloved, it's better felt than telt. The corroborating spirit is better than reading my name on some kind of spiritual birth certificate. When I lead somebody to Christ, I don't do that. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to give them assurance. He is the ultimate. And this inward witness of the Spirit is more than just taking God at His Word as needful and wonderful as that is. This is something subjective, not just objective. This is something inward, not just exterior. And this is what gives us great confidence, great boldness, yes, shamelessness in prayer. I hope you'll never read Matthew 7, 11 and Luke eleven thirteen 13 in quite the, same, quite the same way again. So I ask in closing, is the Holy Spirit real to you? Do you wait on Him when you pray? Do you even think about Him when you pray? Do you ask for more of His influences and gifts and operations so that as Jesus promised in John chapter 6, out of your innermost being may flow rivers of living water to others? Do you want His love to be shed abroad in your hearts? The Bible says that's done by the Holy Spirit in Romans 5 verse 5. Literally gushed forth. The love of God gushed forth in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. David said in Psalm 116 verse 1, I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my supplications. As you experience answers to prayer, you'll just love Him more. And that love will grow. D.L. Moody had an experience on Wall Street in New York in the 1870s when he was trying to raise money to rebuild his Sunday school back in Chicago that had burned in the great fire. He said he had an experience of the love of God in Christ. Liquid waves of love rolled over him. He said he had to ask God to stay his hand. He said, don't just emulate an experience. Okay, don't emulate an experience, but are you going to explain it away? He said, I went back to preaching, but I wasn't the same. I went back to preaching the same sermons, but now there was a new power. What are you going to do with that? Do we know anything about the power of the Holy Ghost? Do we know what praying in the Holy Ghost is all about? Will someone get desperate to enter into this? The assurance of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the comprehensive gift. He's the conveyancer of all God's gifts. At His baptism, our Lord received the Spirit without measure, the Bible says. And He who was baptized is now the baptizer. His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, the Bible says in 2 Peter 1 verse 3. Would you look once again very quickly, very cursorily at what the New Testament says about the Holy Spirit? He's the Spirit of grace, revealing and imparting all grace that is the fullness of Christ. He's the Spirit of faith, 
teaching us to begin and and to go on in believing. He's the spirit of adoption and assurance, bearing witness inwardly that we are the children of God and that we have a right of access into God's presence. He's the spirit of truth, leading us into all truth. He's the spirit of prayer, breathing us into us those groanings which cannot be uttered. He's the spirit of judgment and burning, searching the heart and convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's the spirit of holiness, enabling us to mortify our flesh and put on the fruits of the Spirit and graces of the new man. He's the Spirit of power who infuses us and endues us with boldness to testify and work effectually for Christ. He's the Spirit of glory, the preparation and foretaste of the glory to come. What we need more than anything else is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and we will pray with faith and confidence. How's your prayer life this morning? Don't say it out loud. But if you were honest, would you have to say, Pastor, it's pretty pitiful. It's pretty anemic. Do you rest content without answers to prayer? You just quickly say, well, it must not be God's will. Or God has something better. You know, sometimes when we think we're resigned to God's will, what we really are, are you listening, is indifferent towards it because our hearts aren't broken by it. Prayer to the Father. In the name of Jesus, communicated by the Holy Spirit, is meant to have an answer. And all God's people said, Let's pray. Oh God, teach us to pray for our lack and deficiency of prayer. The church languishes. The world encroaches. The kingdom tarries. The flesh ascends and parades itself. And our loved ones and friends perish. Oh, Jesus, show us your authority. Bear your heart to us, O Father. Cry out in that elemental way from deep within us, O Holy Spirit. Help us to know what true prayer in the Holy Ghost is. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen. We stand to our feet.